You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment. It is September 16th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daily Pacific Daylight Time. Uh, and uh, this is the deepening your practice uh, class. Um, and I uh, started talking about uh, uh, exploration for meaningfulness last week, and I thought I would continue talking about that tonight. I got about halfway through the way that attachment conditioning affects people's capacity to explore. So I thought I might recap that and then uh, complete the set when you're born uh, uh, everyone is an auto regulator so you don't really have the capacity brain wise to really track that other people are there so we're talking and say in the first five to eight months of life and then uh, what happens uh, is the brain develops enough and then you begin to recognize that people come and take care of you so you move from this sort of self-contained uh, 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 my friend uh, used to call it the blob stage, which I quite, quite liked. Uh, and then you develop enough of a capacity to see that some people come to you to take care of you. Then if they come reliably enough, you shift out of an uh, auto-regulating strategy into an externally focused regulation strategy. If people come reliably enough that you, you begin to develop a sense of uh, security around them showing up, uh, and taking care of you in a predictable way, then you move out of the externally focused strategy into uh, uh, a collaborative uh, experience of care. That is to say, you 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 call out to the world for somebody to take care of you, uh, and then you call out to somebody specifically to take care of you, and uh, and are concerned about whether they'll show up or not. And then when you get into a sense of security in the relationship, the attachment connection to them, you call out uh, to the world with the expectation that your, your needs will be met. And then as the brain develops and you get older, you begin to collaborate with the caregiver uh, as you begin to recognize the utility of being in a collaborative dynamic with uh, uh, the caregiver. Lucia? I've been wondering what uh, uh, an infant, a young infant being an autoregulator means. So they're distressed and then they go into the metajana or like, how do they? <laughs> well, more likely they grab their foot and put it in their mouth uh, or they rock or they, they touch something soft or any of the kinds of things that they do. Um, so infants, the first thing that they look do to uh, do to uh, get attention is they look cute, right? And then they whimper, or the, then they they look confused, and then they whimper, and then they um, intermittently cry. Then they cry. Then they they uh, uh, tantrum, and then if, that, if nobody comes, they go into a kind of anaclytic depression. But that's older. Younger infants really are are they're in an environment. Uh, they their their movements, their crying out, all of that stuff is just uh, in relationship to themselves. And so, you, of course, you you uh, attend to an infant, uh, but they're really mainly focused on their own experience, uh, and they don't uh, or aren't able to distinguish somebody else as independent of themselves. Is that helping at all? Um, I'm assuming that these things are, are described the way that they are because we don't really have memory of what it's like. And uh, all of it is through infant observation to watch what an infant does by themselves. But young infants, before they really have a sense of other people they don't really relate to the world in the in a, in a way that 
would suggest that they're attempting to communicate anything to someone else. They're just really involved in, in their own experience. Have you been around any infants lately to be able to observe what they do? So that might be one way to, to figure out what that really means viscerally. Um, once infants become externally oriented, they begin to call out or reach out or look to the environment for people to come and take care of them. Can you remember, uh, I mean, it's rhetorical, you can't remember. Um, uh, what it was like not to be able to sit up or roll over, not to know anything. Um, I did an AAI, an adult attachment interview with someone. And um, I said to them, uh, one of the questions is, I, I want you to describe your relationship with your caregivers as a, a young child as far back as you can remember. And he began to tell me about the fifth month of gestation uh, which he remembered vividly. Um, and uh, so uh, what turned out, uh, what he was remembering, of course, was a past life, not a past life regression, a rebirthing experience that he'd had uh, as an adult. Uh, but there was a, there was a, it was a, not distinguished that the, the, the trance-like state and the memories that came up in the, in the rebirthing experience were uh, uh, maybe generated in the moment rather than actual memories of the fifth month of gestation. But it was an interesting uh, interview. So we, people relate to these things in different ways. But uh, from purely a biological brain place, the brain isn't developed enough to be able to make those kinds of memories that would then be retrievable by uh, the autobiographical memory system. That, that doesn't happen until uh, three or four or five, depending on when that happens for you. you. You can sort of gauge it if you think back now, what's the earliest memory you have of your childhood? How old were you? Uh, one way to, to look at it is what was, what was your height in terms of the angle of the view that you had what space were you looking at? Uh, who was there and what did they look like? You can begin to piece it together. I think the earliest one that I've been able to find was around four. Um, so, um, What you notice in uh, this uh, process of conditioning and that if, if you're neglected uh, in childhood uh, and there isn't anything else but that, you remain auto-regulating. The attachment strategy then forms at about 10 months old and you, you become a, an anxious, avoidant child. And then as you grow up and become an adult, you become a dismissing adult. If you uh, get through the uh, uh, auto-regulating stage into the external regulating stage, but you don't have consistent enough caregivers, then you be you develop an attachment strategy that's uh, anxious ambivalent as a child and then as you become an adult it becomes preoccupied uh, and it's only if you have the consistent care um, that you move out of that external focus into the collaborative focus and if you do that at around 10 months old or so you form a secure attachment strategy and then as you you grow up, you become a secure adult. There is the other category of disorganized, uh, and that happens because the caregiver becomes the source of fear uh, uh, for the child. So we have the attachment system, we have the exploration system, we have the collaborative system, we have the fight or flight system, all of these things are are part of the human experience. And um, if the attachment system engages, often the fight or flight system engages, the, the exploration system disengages. And if you've developed the collaborative system, that stays online. 
So the attachment uh, system propels you in response to the, the to uh, fearfulness to seek the protection of your caregiver. And uh, if you have a, a collaborative capacity, then you collaborate with your caregiver to find safety and settle again into a sense of uh, equilibrium, in which case the attachment system shuts off and the exploration system turns on. It's important to understand that if the attachment system is activated, the exploration system is shut down. And so when we talk about pursuing things that uh, are meaningful, we pursue them through the exploration system. And so you have to have the capacity to settle the attachment system and activate the exploration system in order for you to be able to do that. And uh, if we look at the different patterns of uh, activation of attachment uh, exploration uh, in the different attachment strategies, what we see are things that are pretty clear. But dismissing people deactivate the attachment system, which means their exploration system is uh, available to them uh, whenever they want it. But uh, in the deactivation of the attachment system, and uh, because they never go through the process of learning collaborative relationships, um, they never move beyond the auto-regulating uh, through the process of learning collaboration. They don't have a tendency to really connect in, uh, in uh, emotional, uh, 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 intimate relationships. One of the ways that they're successful at, at not activating the attachment system is by suppressing awareness of their emotional system. So if we were to compare that to the mentalizing dimensions, um, spontaneity versus monitoring, self versus other, uh, internal versus external, and cognitive versus effective, they have a very clear pattern uh, where they're very monitor-oriented, very control-oriented, and not spontaneous. They're very self-oriented, not other-oriented. They're very internally-oriented, not externally-oriented, and they're very cognitively-oriented. That's how they adapt and uh, deal with uh, the high level of neglect that they have. doesn't mean they give up on getting their needs met. Uh, but they never learn to collaborate in getting their needs met. If you look at secure relationships, small children learn to collaborate with their caregiver. They learn to see that their agenda is separate from their caregiver's uh, agenda, and that if they collaborate with their caregivers, things go smoothly. So they're more likely to be able to get their needs met in that uh, process. A dismissing person doesn't collaborate to get their needs met. Uh, they don't ever develop the capacity to do that. Uh, sometimes um, as adults, when we encounter people that don't have collaborative skills, uh, and if we have them, we make the assumption that they have collaborative skills, they're just not willing to do it. And actually that would be uh, a misunderstanding of the situation. They never develop the collaborative skills, so they don't know how to do it. And it doesn't even occur to them that that would be a way to, to navigate the world. They see the things that they want and they take them. And that's the skill set that they developed in childhood. And so you you see people operating in that way. Uh, they're very transaction oriented. I do this if you do that. Uh, there's no intimacy, there's no exchange, there's no collaboration. And if you're not doing the thing that they want, they don't see the need to complete or reciprocate the care. Uh, when we talk about exploration in terms of primary and secondary exploration, primary exploration is where the activity itself generates the meaning. And in secondary uh, exploration, you explore in order to get the resources that you need to be able to transact for the things that you want, so that you'll notice in, in certain high social value, high power, high remuneration uh, uh, positions, um, dismissing people tend to be uh, more common 
because they see the purpose of going for those things because it then allows them to transact the things that they they want um, I think that if you look at the world it's it, uh, that that view uh, has a, a lot of weight in our culture because <clears throat> you know for instance if we were talk to talk about the environment we have missed the opportunity to stop uh, uh, climate change from happening and now we are all going to have the experience of what it's like for the planet to heat up and all of the disruptions that are going to come from that and yet uh, in the 50 years that we had to change the direction of our culture we were unable to to do that because we were unable to convince the people that were getting uh, short-term gains uh, from changing their mind about the utility of that so it's very hard to uh, change the perspective of somebody who who has never really seen the value of, uh, of any of that and, and doesn't consider it as part of the equation uh, for what's useful. If the difference was between uh, gaining a lot of, of the resources that you need to transact your relationship uh, and or whatever it is that you wanted and uh, the whole community being benefited by restricting certain behaviors it would it wouldn't even really can occur to them to uh, uh, preference or um, to uh, prefer the the needs of the community over the gaining of resources preoccupied minds are very focused on external regulation for a sense of uh, well-being and emotional stability and so they tend to be hyper focused on other people and lose track of themselves that hyper focus on other people is actually an activation of the attachment system and so with the attachment system activated what you'll notice is that the exploration system is deactivated so preoccupied people don't explore well uh, mainly because they they haven't developed the capacity to settle the attachment system uh, and so uh, the activation of the attachment system interferes and inhibits the exploration system so that when you uh, examine the the minds of uh, preoccupied people who are in an active state they can't solve the problems of basic exploration because uh, that part of the brain isn't operating for them it's only when the attachment system is settled and shut down that the attachment system can activate and you can begin the process of exploration what you notice in the childhoods of many people who grow up to be preoccupied is the caregiver inhibiting the uh, child's uh, um, exploration development. Um, if you've ever been around young children who are trying to walk, they have to fall down quite a bit. And they're constantly looking back at their caregivers for the reassurance that they need to keep going, to keep pursuing it, even though it's difficult and, and sometimes surprising and frightening and painful. But if they have a caregiver who inhibits that, often it, it comes in the form of overprotection, then the child doesn't learn to overcome those hurdles. One of the things that you notice about exploration is that most of the avenues, most of the directions in which you go in exploration don't actually provide much in the way of meaning. And so there's a resiliency that needs to be developed in order to pursue uh, deep enough into the exploration that you really get to the places that have a, a richness and meaning. And that in people who are not resilient, they, they, they take a couple of tracks toward uh, what they want to explore and if it doesn't pay immediate fruit they get discouraged by it and don't continue to explore.
you know, kids that are encouraged, they fall down, they get up, they fall down, they get up, they have a caregiver who comes in and comforts them and encourages them to keep going. And then when they make it, they're celebrated for doing that. There's the sense of delight that they were able to do that. And in kids that didn't have that, they don't have that, the support and the encouragement that they need to really develop the capacity to explore in a deep way. Because if you don't have that capacity, then you don't have the meaningfulness of it that comes from that uh, exploration. Um, and we haven't talked at all about what you explore and what's meaningful. We're simply talking about uh, the capacities to do that uh, and how the attachment conditioning affects that. Um, there's a lot to do in, in preoccupation that there isn't to do in, in dismissing attachment. People who have dismissing attachment already know how to explore. You don't have to teach them how to explore. What you have to teach them is the difference between primary exploration and secondary exploration and support them uh, to move into primary exploration and take risks for meaning. Their concern is that they'll be humiliated and and rejected if they're vulnerable in terms of expressing what they need. That's a different thing than uh, encountering somebody who never really had the opportunity because of their uh, upbringing to uh, learn uh, resilience, uh, learn uh, to explore, learn to tolerate the frustration and failure that uh, exploration often produces. Secure people know that, and because uh, when they have sensitive enough caregivers, that the caregiver is interested in who they are and interested in the skill sets that they have and interested in what the, the child prefers, uh, and they, they are able to hold what they prefer for the child and what the child prefers separately and focus on really supporting and encouraging the child to develop uh, those skills. They know how to explore, they know how to find out whether something's meaningful to them or not, and they actually can organize their life in such a way that they spend a lot of time uh, engaged in those meaningful activities. Disorganized people um, what happens to them is uh, different depending on how you, which uh, kind of disorganization it is. Most of the time they have trauma uh, or some kind of abuse. Most often children are abused by their, their caregivers or in the family system. Uh, and so that affects um, their perception of relationships in a way that's different than organized people are who haven't had those experiences. If uh, the fight or flight mechanism goes off, the attachment system goes off, and the attachment system seeks you to compel physical proximity to your caregiver. But if your caregiver is the person who caused the fight or flight mechanism to go off, what do you do? You're being compelled to seek physical proximity and comfort from the person who's harming you. It creates a, a schism in the child that is really difficult for the child to uh, uh, sort. And so they become passive. They become uh, uh, unable to respond. Uh, um, I worked with some people who ran a preschool and when I began to describe the, the, the different presentations that uh, children with uh, the early attachment systems uh, were, um, how they appeared, uh, they knew immediately uh, how to recognize the disorganized child because the disorganized child freezes and then falls over and doesn't actively seek comfort from anyone. They're inconsolable because they can't reach out and, and attempt to connect anyone. They're too afraid to connect to anyone, and so they don't get the benefit of the connection and the regulation. Um, but the 
the attachment, the way that it looks is the attachment mechanism goes off and the child runs for the caregiver. And then the fight or flight mechanism goes off as they reach proximity to the person who's also frightening them. And the two systems cancel each other out and the child literally collapses uh, on the on the pavement and doesn't seek comfort after that. So what you have in disorganized people are these kind of truncated explorations. Uh, you have uh, a lot of beginnings, um, a lot of potential. Uh, sometimes uh, people get into the, the middle of an exploration, um, but m most of the time, because something causes the fight or flight system to engage, they don't finish much so that they're in this uh, sort of unreliable space. One of the things that you'll notice about our culture and particularly about this human uh, condition of living together in social groups is that uh, the, the most reliable, most durable successes are collaborative. Um, and so if you can't join a team and you can't figure out how to function on a team, you don't really get to go where the team goes. Um, so in corporations, of course, there's lots of little teams and then uh, you, you work your way up if your team is successful. In smaller uh, activities, it's really being able to function within the social group. And if you can't do that, not being included over the long term. Lucia? Yeah, I'm wondering, um, the way I had thought about the attachment system activating was in terms of dysregulation, right? So I thought that that meant that you were dysregulated. And then when you re-regulated, then you could explore and you were, uh, you felt calm and so on. But right. then um, the way you're differentiating between the fight or the fight and flight system going off and the attachment system going off seems like they're two separate things. And so I'm wondering what's what's the difference between them and how they relate to dysregulation. And I guess how you can um, perceive when your attachment system is going off. So the full set is fight, flight, freeze, faint, fawn, and fornicate. I like to say fornicate because it's all uh, Fs. Um, horniness is often a stress response, right? Uh, um, uh, when something happens and exceeds your window of tolerance where you can just manage it, sometimes the fight or flight mechanism goes off. Uh, and different kinds of responses come from the fight or flight mechanism. It can also trigger the attachment system, which is separate from that. Um, and th the attachment system is always compelling you to seek proximity to somebody who will protect you, somebody who makes you feel safe. Um, if the fight or flight mechanism goes off, you might not have an attachment system going off. You might instead want to fight and you don't see the need to seek somebody else. So you might want to, to um, fawn. You know what fawning is? That's where you bow your head and you don't make eye contact and you admit that you're uh, submissive to the person who has more power than you do. Uh, fight, flight, freeze. You might freeze, right? That doesn't, freezing prevents you from seeking proximity. Stress responses that include uh, sexual expression are pretty common. Uh, 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 all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, um, that could include uh, attachment, the attachment system going off, but it also doesn't have to. Um, have you ever engaged in sexual activity where you weren't frightened of, of being harmed? I would say that was probably more common. Um, you know, as a gay man who who grew up in the 80s, there were, uh, you know, frequent uh, 
large uh, encounters of people that were sexualized and nobody seemed particularly frightened. They just seemed like they were partying. It was, it was impersonal, but is that making sense? So the attachment system going off, you can tell that it's going off because you want proximity to another person. You want and proximity to somebody who you think will protect you. And if you don't think anybody will protect you, then your attachment system just doesn't go off. It's kind of um, Well, no, it, it goes off, but then you don't seek proximity. That would be, that's the conundrum of the disorganized person. So my question is, how would they know the, the attachment system is going off? If, like, is, is it like a conflict where they want to and they just, they just don't do it? Or is it below the level, the threshold of consciousness? Well, I think that you can, that it's a view and that you can learn to track views. You can learn to understand what view is present or not present in the mind. The Buddha talked about it in terms of uh, craving, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and agitation and doubt. But each of the attachment views has a, a way of changing the way that conceptual reality looks. Uh, do you know when the mind is angry? Do you know when the mind is happy? Do you know when the mind is sad? And how do you know that? How does the world look to you? How do you, how do, do you look to yourself uh, when that mind state is there? And how different is it when a different mind state is there or a different view is there? Is that making sense? you may not be able to do it right away. And this again would be look, we would be looking again at your early childhood experience to understand how that happened. In secure upbringings, because the, the, the caregivers are genuinely interested in the child's point of view, they're constantly inquiring of the child what their point of view is. I can't tell what's going on with you. What's going on with you? Use your words. Have you ever been around a caregiver who did that? What's going on with you? Are you happy? Is this what happiness is? Tell me. Tell me what's going on with you. And then the child will have to investigate, figure out what's happening for them, and then learn to communicate it to somebody else. Um, and if you don't have a caregiver who's interested in what your point of view is, not interested in what your experience is, they don't ask you. And because they don't ask you, you don't learn to figure it out for yourself. It doesn't mean you can't do it now. It just means that nobody insisted that you do it. But if you're around children who are learning to talk, one of the ways to help them improve their vocabulary is by connecting their speech to their own experience and then getting them to explain their experience. And so you see that in, in, in some parents. What's going on with you? Or you seem really happy, or you seem angry, or what's happening? And, uh, and it's, a, it's an all day long, constant inquiry, which is quite different than you're angry. I can see that. Or you're unhappy, or I can see that. Or you, or, or you don't like what I just did, or all of the things where it's not an inquiry, it's, a, it's a, an assigning. If you're constantly just being assigned to, you don't develop the capacity to explore your own mind states. You just accept what other people are assigning to you, uh, or you don't notice at all. Dismissing people, of course, don't have any of that experience, uh, and they don't have empathy, and they don't have emotion. So they create a conceptual reality that seems completely uh, solid and believable. And they, they get quite uh, uh, panicky when somebody challenges the internal working model that they've created because they don't have any way to independently validate it. Um, and so what you'll notice is they attempt to seduce or bully uh, you into supporting their point of view, which is uh, colloquially, called, colloquially called gaslighting. Um, but what they're doing is trying to 
preserve their internal working model because the, it, it creates fear for them if if people don't agree uh, and support their interpretation of what's happening. We need to, as practitioners of uh, meditation, begin to learn to do this for ourselves so that we have really good clarity about what these views are moment by moment as they uh, come and go. Um, And we do that through practice. Um, Vipassana practice is really useful for that. Metta practice is also useful for that because we we can often uh, come into interpretations of things that are painful uh, and the natural tendency is to withdraw from the painful experience. Uh, And if we have the capacity then to develop positivity uh, and we have agency in doing it, uh, we can develop positivity to counteract the negativity and and then continue to pursue things uh, even if they're difficult. This is extraordinarily useful for exploration because to really go for things that are meaningful are often to go things uh, go for things that are hard to do, hard to get at. And so if we have this uh, training where we we have the capacity to generate a lot of positivity to to balance that out, it isn't so limiting when we encounter a tough patch. Um, I did want to begin to talk about what is meaningful. Uh, in uh, in Buddhism, often we talk about it in terms of bodhicitta or the awakened heart, the opening of the heart, the opening of compassion the opening of sympathetic joy, of uh, loving kindness. Um, uh, we open to a sense of our place in the community and and, uh, uh, and the, the place of being in service to the community. Um, in the Mahayana uh, traditions of Buddhism, so Zen, Chan, or in the Tibetan practices, there's this the central focus on that, which isn't really uh, so much in the, the Theravada way of practicing. But my experience of this is that if you practice and you open uh, the your capacity to understand what this human condition is and what is really happening, that then the heart naturally opens and puts you in this place of compassion, this place of concern for the the other people that you encounter, and that part of this uh, pursuit of something that's meaningful is uh, to be a member of the community of, of people and to participate in the care of all of us, and that there's a richness to that, a meaningfulness to that. Um, my mind isn't coming up with the last name. I'm sure you know it. Uh, Victor uh, wrote what? Frankel. Uh, yes, <laughs> my lip reading skills worked. <laughs> Talked about uh, the the lives of people in in concentration camps in extreme extreme uh hardship and and that some people found uh that attending to the needs of the community was quite meaningful and that that propelled them forward uh and that um, some people didn't have the capacity for that and and the, that they were more easily overwhelmed with despair uh around the conditions that they were in um, and I think that part of that is that sense of uh, collaboration that that uh, comes in that that sense of security uh, that you uh, this understanding is um, you take care of people in the way that they need to be taken care of, uh, and you pay attention to people who can reciprocate uh, and take care of you in a way that's meaningful to you. And you begin to explore in uh, the different ways in which people uh, take care of you and evaluate the ones that are meaningful to you and the ones that don't matter to you. Often where people get hung up is that 
people like to be taken care of in a way that doesn't mean anything to you, you would, in, uh, in fact, enjoy being taken care of in the way that they find necessary to be taken care of. And then how do you find within yourself the capacity to take care of them in a way that's very meaningful to them, but you wouldn't actually need or want? And then they take care of you in, in, in that way. Um, and so that's really about this, this, this group of people that you surround yourself with and that you take care of them so that they're in good shape. This, this is a, maybe there's a, a way that you could look at that, that that was um, self-serving. But if you take care of people and they're, so that they're in really good shape, then they're in really good shape to take care of you. And if you don't take care of the people around you so that they're not in good shape, then the people that you've chosen to take care of you are not in good shape to take care of you. And so that your, your uh, uh, well-being is affected by that. What you notice, for instance, in um, dismissing uh, people, they don't reciprocate. You take care of them and they pay you through some form of uh, transactionary uh, bargaining as soon as you've taken care of them the transaction is complete for them so you you get into a habit of having to get payment up front before you provide because if you don't they won't pay you later and um and they don't care whether you burn out because they'll just replace you with somebody else they're they're almost indifferent to it when when it really gets a rigid then preoccupied people don't explore and so they don't they need somebody else's exploration and so the the, the second most common coupling is this dismissing with the preoccupied person where the preoccupied person really has no exploration outside the relationship so you can find uh, that there's this view that relationships are supposed to provide the meaningfulness of life um, but they don't really the meaningfulness of life is in, in you discovering and exploring things that resonate with your whole beingness. So you have to be able to go off and find out what that is. I, I talk about uh, apples sometimes with this. Um, when I got sober in 1978, uh, my first sponsor said to me, you're going to use the program as a cloak that you wear loosely as you go build your life back into the world. I said, well, I have no idea what that, that means. And he, he said, well, you like apples, right? What kind of apples do you like? And I said, I don't really like apples. They're hard, they're sour. And he said, well, Granny Smiths are hard and sour, but there's lots of different apples. What other ones do you like? And I said, well, that, that, that was literally the only apple my mother ever bought. So that was the only apple that I really knew. Uh, I mean, we got Harry and David uh, uh, at Christmas time, and but those were those giant show apples that were mealy and didn't, didn't taste very good. But uh, so we said, you're going to go to the Korean deli and you're going to buy a Granny Smith. You're going to buy one one other apple and you're going to eat them both. And then the next day, you're going to go the, and buy the apple you liked better and one more apple you haven't tried yet. And you're going to do that until you go through all of the apples in the deli. That's like, at that time, like 26 varieties of apples in the Korean delis. And so I went every day dutifully. And then I would go to a meeting and report to them uh, what I discovered. And at the end of it, I liked gala apples. And I liked Pink Ladies second. And I really still don't like Granny's with apples. <laughs> But what you notice about that is you have to go and you have to explore and you have to try and you have to see what it is that resonates with you. And you have to fail almost all of the time. If you try 26 apples and you like one the best, that means you didn't like 25 apples as much, right? And so th that's that resilience piece. And even if it isn't uh, getting somewhere and having that sense of uh, arriving and meaningfulness, you, you're engaged in the process of discovering and you're, uh, you're learning and uh, um, comparing and 
goal correcting as you get there. And then what you begin to realize is that each person has this unique sensibility that's just theirs and that that because the sensibilities are so varied and so different, the things that resonate for them are different than the things that will resonate for you. And then you can get into this collaborative kind of discussion in supporting each other's collaboration where they can tell you in an intimate and authentic way what resonates for them, what's meaningful to them, and you can share with them what resonates and what's meaningful to you and that helps highlight what it is that that is a good match for your sensibility that it helps highlight for them the same thing and that you can support each other as you move through this process of the human life finding this stuff and you know it varies quite a bit with the aging process and and each discovery uh, in some sense platforms the the next discovery and then you find this process of moving toward uh, things that are meaningful to you and then the collaborative piece of sharing them with the people that are close to you and then that that uh, process is enriching and if it, it even matches that attachment system you go rushing out to explore and find something then come rushing back to the people that are supporting that and share it and they are really interested in in what it is that you found out uh, you know there's that piece where i don't have to go find that out because they found it out but then i found this out and uh, they don't have to go find that out uh, and so each of us has the this uh, unique experience of our conditioning which creates these uh, unique um, um, points of view, these uh, unique interests. Uh, so there isn't one monolithic meaningfulness thing to go get. There's all of these little pieces of experience and, and uh, discovery that then create that sensibility that's just yours uh is that making sense so then um let us do some meta practice today so that we can focus on that aspect of positivity the development of positivity because that really is one of the things that's necessary to buoy us uh, as we move through We'll start with an easy person and then uh, focus on self. Uh, what we want to be able to do is have real agency to pull up a, a, a positive experience whenever we need it, because that's what supports our solo exploration, but also what uh, enables us to support uh, the exploration of the people that are uh, close to us. So uh, go ahead and settle in. To your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about the meditation that we just did? Good. Juliet? Can I? It's Weiling, actually. Um, hey, Weiling. Hi. Um, I actually, I, f I felt my um, my head buzzing when uh -huh. I did the meditation. Is that normal? That's called piti, and actually, you kind of want, want that to happen. It's a, one of the byproducts of becoming concentrated. And actually, you can use that as the object of meditation. It's a little bit easier sometimes to track that. Uh, uh, and uh, it allows you to go deeper into the concentration. But we're not, but we're doing meta, right? So if I'm switching to concentration, I'm confused. Am I allowed to do that? Well, this is meta jhana practice. So we're using the meta mind uh, as a vehicle toward high concentration states. Oh, okay. So that, that's what you would expect to have happen. So that's a good report. Okay. And then, so is there, 
So once you get there, is there something else you're supposed to do to get to another place? Or this that's that's the object. Well, first jhana is where you place and sustain awareness of the object of meditation, which is the mind state. Vt arises, which is that buzzing. Mm -hmm. Sukha arises, which is a blissful state. So there's a pleasant state that arises in the body. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it gets very intense. Uh, and then the mind settles in and you're just abiding in that uh, uh, mind state. Uh, after a while, the the uh, you drop into a deeper level of settling, a deeper level of concentration. So you don't have to effort to hold the object of meditation. The mind just stays. In first jhana, it's unstable, so you're popping in and out, and you constantly have to be redirecting back. But when you get into the second level, you just stay there. And then after a while, that buzzing gets to be too coarse. Uh, and so you drop a further stage where the, the PT goes and it's just the bliss and the one-pointedness of metamind. What do you mean by coarse? It, it's too energetic. Oh, okay. Uh, and so you drop to a further level. Um, but then you have to keep inclining the mind toward metta because uh, what happens in uh, third uh, metta jhana is that you often drop out into fourth vipassana jhana where the bliss is replaced by equanimity. And if that happens, you have to re-incline the mind toward loving kindness so that you stay uh, not in perfect balance, but actually inclining toward the mind state. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. Someone else? Good. So, um, we're going to do another level of round one, uh, level one of the meditation and attachment level one in October. So three, uh, uh, two Saturdays in October and one in November. And then we have the year-end retreat, which is going to be in person for the first time in two years. There are four spaces left in that uh, uh, retreat. Um, you can find that on the website. It's from December 26th until January 2nd. Uh, and then uh, January 11th, we're starting another level two class, if you're interested in that. Uh, the level uh, two class we just started actually today, the mentoring is full for that class, but if you were interested in it, the, the January 11th class is still open for that. Uh, and then we'll do um, in the in the late winter uh, meditation uh, and addiction uh, series. I'm not sure exactly how, probably a, a weekend retreat for that. So that's what's coming up. Thank you for coming to class. I really appreciate your practice. I offer the teaching freely, uh, but I do hope that you'll make a donation. You can find a link to do that on our website. Uh, any amount helps. It helps support me and also the work Metagroup is doing. You're, of course, please come and practice. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Bye.